Who doesn't like a good old-fashioned moral outrage? We'll be talking about the first major moral outrages of the modern era on this episode of Delicious History. Hi there, I'm your host, Dave Militello. Delicious History is a weekly podcast talking about how food has directly affected the world we live in today. For more information, you can visit our Instagram and Facebook pages, both at Delicious History Podcast or our website at deliciousHistoryPodcast.com. Moral panics are nothing new. In fact, they've been around for as long as we've had a society. It can even be said that moral panic is a sign that society has formed a true community, since these are typically seen when people don't want things to change, implying that a solid system has been in place for some time. Unfortunately, there are often victims on the other ends of these moral outrages that have to pay a price for their lifestyle choices or simply just their identity. Oftentimes, religion is what pushes the fight. We could think about first century Christians who had a price on their head and often had to pay for their convictions with public executions. Although it should be noted there was no Christians executed in the Colosseum in Rome, despite what you may think, but that's a whole different story for another day. Speaking of Christians, they've also been on the attacking end and not just victims themselves. Think about the religious wars that took place in Europe around the time of the Protestant Reformation. In addition to differing religious dogma, they were also known to execute people that were known to be homosexuals, blasphemers, or even witches, often with no proof whatsoever. Thankfully, we don't see much of that anymore But that doesn't mean that social outrage isn't still a thing. I mean, it very much is, although its form has changed over the centuries. Moving away from religious ideologies, a more secular form of morality has very much played a role in how people view each other in society. Things went from getting angry over people violating scripture to violating public safety or one's own health. In just the last century or so, we've seen things such as prohibition of alcohol and marijuana coming after decades of very public support. Don't worry, we're going to be mentioning those in later episodes, but today we're going to be talking about the first major prohibition of our era that had long-lasting effects up to our very day. The Green Fairy herself, Absinthe. I remember uh, from the time I was a kid, Absinthe always had this really shady reputation as this green fairy that make you hallucinate. Um, Now, I grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, and my only real exposure to the idea of Absinthe besides rumors was a 2004 movie called Eurotrip. I don't even think I saw the whole movie. I think I just saw like part of it on, on HBO or something. But I remember there was this scene where there were characters in Eastern Europe and they were at a bar that had this bright green, like neon-colored uh, liquor. And they drank it and they just started tripping. But, you know, that's because there's actually a fair amount of false ideas about this drink. And understanding why we have them plays a large role in this story. Just in case you were wondering, yes, absinthe is currently legal in most countries. Uh, but this was a relatively recent change. I myself have a bottle of absinthe in my home bar, although I rarely use it. I think I just kind of have it for flavoring in certain drinks like Sazeracs or Monkey Glands. But let's start there. Before we can really get into the controversy that absinthe later became, let's start with what absinthe is. Now, absinthe is a strong spirit that's generally bottled between 45 and 80% alcohol. It falls into the category of anise-flavored drinks such as ouzo, sambuca, and pastis. Uh, That last one's actually going to play a role in our story later on. Anise-flavored drinks of all kinds have been around for a very, very long time, especially in the Mediterranean region. 
One thing that's often a hallmark of these types of liquors is that when water is added to them, they take on a milky appearance. One thing that sets absinthe apart from other liquors in its class, though, is the type of herbs that it contains, with the most famous being wormwood. And this is one of the reasons why it has a characteristically bitter flavor to it, and is often mixed with something sweet, such as sugar, to offset that particular flavor. In fact, the traditional way to drink absinthe, uh, in bars especially, the old Parisian way, uh, is to take a glass and just put a little bit of absinthe on the bottom, and then put a slotted spoon on top, typically called a, a uh, absinthe spoon, with a sugar cube, and have cold water drip on it, until it's about mm, four to five parts water to one part absinthe. Absinthe started to be made on a commercial level, starting in the country of Switzerland, but eventually in France by one of the most famous names in liquor even today, Henri-Louis Pernod. This name Pernod should ring a bell since not only are they famous for their liquor of the same name, but the company itself, now known as Pernod Ricard, is one of the largest distributors of alcohol in the world after buying up a bunch of other familiar companies uh, like Beefeater Gin, Kahlua, and Absolute Vodka. Pernod started to produce their absinthe in the early 19th century, and it started to take off relatively quickly in France because drinks containing wormwood were given to French soldiers serving abroad, particularly in Algiers, to help them fight malaria. In a lot of ways, this story parallels that of gin and tonics within the British military. As European nations were colonizing other parts of the world, malaria became a huge liability because of how easy it was to catch and how difficult it is to cure. That's even true today. It was believed that wormwood could play a role in preventing or curing malaria like quinine and tonic water. Now, I should mention at this point that these weren't exactly absinthe drinkers per se, at least not yet, uh, but rather wormwood that had been seeped in wine. But still, the flavor profile was very much similar to what we'd later see in absinthe. As these soldiers came back home, they took their new taste with them, and you started to see absinthe popping up in local bars. It was during this time that absinthe started to become associated with not just French people in general, but with that of Paris. Now, it's obviously true a lot of people drank absinthe in the countryside, but the idea of Paris becoming the central hub of art and culture seemed to coincide with the rise of absinthe. It was during the 1860s that two things started to become real big in the City of Lights. The general popularity of absinthe and that of the explosion of art and culture. A lot of this had to do with the fact that there had been prolonged peace in Europe. Now, of course, there were conflicts and wars at the time, but they weren't really involved in the continent itself, which was not something that could have been said for a long time. After the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century, most conflicts were seen overseas and sometimes were related to colonialism versus the survival of the homeland. As a result, Paris became not just a haven for French artists and writers, but for those of other areas, such as from Britain, Spain, the US, and the newly formed Kingdom of Italy. It just so happens that the time period in which a lot of these famous people started to show up in the streets of Paris was also the time when absinthe started to explode in popularity. Artists that we associate with art in general, like Manet or Van Gogh, were some of the first on the absinthe scene in Paris. Other artists and writers such as Pablo Picasso, Oscar Wilde, and Alfred Jarry would later join the scene, but still enjoy the same refreshments. It was at this time that absinthe went from something that was enjoyed by most classes of people to something that was now considered to be the drink of a subculture of people known as the Bohemians. Perhaps you've heard of this type of lifestyle used as an insult, or at the very least something not overly desirable for a parent to see in their child. So while we're talking about Bohemian lifestyles, Let's talk about that word Bohemian and where it comes from, because it's actually pretty strange when you think about it. First of all, Bohemia is a region in Europe which now belongs to part of the Czech Republic. 
So at first, you might be thinking that Bohemians perhaps were coming to Paris in droves at the time and were bringing their lifestyle with them. Well, um, almost, kind of, but, but not really. See, what happened was, during this time, there was an increase of people from Eastern Europe in general that would become known as gypsies. Although this is now an offensive word because it was and continues to be used as a racial slur when talking about certain groups of people such as the Roma. Ironically, I actually know some people named Gypsy, so I think it's kind of weird to be named after a racial slur, but yeah, that's besides the point. But when we think about the word Gypsy, we might think of people who roam around having no place to call home, and oftentimes are associated with bands of robbers and thieves. Oftentimes these people were known as Bohemian at the time, and that name also applied to people who were native to whatever country you're talking about, but had a lifestyle that involved a lack of stability, uh, living in low-rent portions of the city, often going out into late hours drinking and not having a real job, oftentimes being artists or part of the artistic community. This later became known as La Viboine. Of course, since absinthe was now starting to become associated with these groups of people, there started to become a natural distrust of the drink overall. It appears as though the people that were drinking it were the dregs of society and were often involved with the less savory ways of life. As one might imagine, being in 19th century France, Wine, and by extension cognac, armagnac, and brandy in general, were considered to be the drink of the civilized, with certain vintages being reserved for the higher echelon of society. However, between the 1850s and 1870s, there was a large-scale wine shortage due to the Great French Wine Blight. This was brought on by aphids that originated from North America, and when they were brought to Europe, they devastated grape crops, in France in particular. At some points during the blight, more than 40% of all grapes grown died and were unable to produce wine. As a result, the price of wine and wine products skyrocketed, and those that were of a lower income, who were often the bohemian artists that lived in these neighborhoods, turned to absinthe for their boozy pleasures. As we talk more about the reputation of absinthe and the neighborhoods where it thrived, don't be surprised if you start to see parallels to the world we live in now, especially when it comes to certain substances being used. Something that tends to thrive in lower-class neighborhoods, regardless of any sort of drug or alcohol consumption, is that of violence and robbery. People started to blame absinthe at the time, and it started to make sense scientifically. Seeing as how absinthe was deeply entrenched in the art culture of the time, it makes sense that we start to see how people viewed the drink and the people who drank it in a more physical sense. Perhaps one of the most famous depictions of absinthe at the time was that of Manet's The Absinthe Drinker. I'll tell you what's interesting about this painting. Now, we're going to uh, put it up on our Instagram page so you can get a look at it in person. But it's so interesting to see how views of fashion change over the years. Uh, <laughs> see, when I first saw this painting, I thought it was just like some dude from the 19th century with a tall top hat. But to someone who was around at the time, it was a disgusting picture of a disheveled man who obviously got to where he was by drinking the absinthe that he has next to him and the obvious empty bottle on the ground in front of him. I guess I'm just so used to people being dressed like slobs nowadays, I didn't even notice. But, um, oh, so as a side note, uh, Manet actually added the bottle of absinthe to the painting almost a decade after he originally finished it. You know, it's so strange to think how sometimes an artist can present their work to the public, especially a very well-known work, and then later change it. But that's what happened with this one. Another famous painting at the time was that of Edgar Degas in his painting L'Absinthe. This one I've already posted on our social media as a teaser for these episodes, so uh, you can see that there. In it, we see a young woman who's sitting at a table at a cafe or bar, 
and just staring off into the distance with a blank look on her face. Uh, there is another disheveled man sitting to her left, possibly a date, and the only thing in front of her is a glass of prepared absinthe. Again, this shows us the view of many people who lived at the time and how they felt about absinthe in a way that it was destroying your brain and making you a shell of a person that you were after you consumed it. But it's the connection between thinking and absinthe that's really important to understand to this story. You see, many people drank absinthe at the time not just because it was cheaper than some of the other options out there, but because they felt it helped them to think better and become more artistic. That's why not only was it commonly drunk amongst the artistic groups, but even promoted amongst poets and artists and writers. In fact, one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite writers about absinthe uh, came from Oscar Wilde when he said, quote, After the first glass, you see things as you wish they were. After the second, you see things as they are not. Finally, you see things as they really are. And that is the most horrible thing in the world. But as more and more people were consuming absinthe and its reputation started to go down, there were more studies that were done to find out what exactly the effects of the herbs in the absinthe caused. The one thing that most people agreed on was the stimulating effects of wormwood, though that was probably overstated. Thujone, one of the active ingredients in wormwood extract, has been thought to have a wide variety of mood-affecting properties. But the question is whether there's even enough thujone in absinthe to cause any significant changes in that regard. In fact, even those studies started back in the 19th century. We still don't have exact answers as to what thujone does and doesn't do in the amounts found in absinthe. And believe it or not, there appears to be even some positive effects of thujone in the body, such as antioxidative and anti-inflammatory properties. Maybe. <laughs> Again, the science is real sketchy here. And all that I'm going to say is don't take absinthe if you're trying to improve your health. But there was one effect of absinthe that became extremely popular, although it appears to maybe not even be a real thing. Hallucinations. We've heard of pink elephants stereotypically seen by drunks, but the green fairy, or the fivert, is probably the most famous symptom associated with absinthe. In fact, if you look at a lot of the art at the time depicting absinthe consumption, green fairies were very common. But apparently fairies were a bit different back in the day, as, uh, I mean, at least in my generation, when we think of fairies, we might think of like Tinkerbell, right? Like a, a little thin woman with wings that could fit in the palm of your hand. But the depictions of these green fairies were often full-sized women with the boobs falling out of the robes. But, you know, we're talking about French people here, so I guess it checks out. Although at the time it wasn't very well reported, it's very much a possibility that these reports were exaggerated by people who had political or financial interest in shutting down absinthe consumption. One of the most common suspects were producers of other alcoholic beverages, particularly wine producers in France. Now, this is a very interesting point because this is not the last time that we'll see people with financial interests stoking the flames of moral outrage in society. This especially becomes the case in later years of the prohibition of marijuana consumption in the United States. While some of the information was based on flawed studies at the time, many were outright lies that could easily have been disproven, even in their own day. In Conrad Barnaby's book, Absinthe in a Bottle, he quoted a French critic at the time who said, quote, Absinthe makes you crazy and criminal, provokes epilepsy and tuberculosis, and has killed thousands of French people. It makes a ferocious beast of man, a martyr of woman, and a degenerate of the infant. It disorganizes and ruins the family and menaces the future of the country. So right off the bat, um, 
Again, there's no evidence that absinthe made people crazy um, or any more criminal than alcohol, and it certainly didn't give people tuberculosis. So <laughs> these are obviously people who are just trying to stoke these flames. But there was one particular event that really turned the tables on the popularity of absinthe, the horrifying case of Jean Lafray in 1906. Now, before I go any further, I need to warn you that what happens is quite disturbing. So just keep that in mind before we go any further with this story. Lefray was a man who was born in France, but was living in Switzerland at the time with his family. Another fact you need to know about him was that he was a notorious drunk. According to reports at the time, he had quite an eventful afternoon with his father. After eating a sandwich, Lefray went on to consume a ridiculous amount of liquor, especially considering he was day drinking. This included seven glasses of wine, six glasses of cognac, one coffee laced with brandy, two creme de menthe, and yes, two glasses of absinthe. According to police reports, he then went home with his father, where he got into an argument with his pregnant wife. After demanding that she shine his shoes, to which she refused, he took a service rifle and shot her in the head, killing her instantly. His father ran away, and when his daughter came into the room to find out what all the ruckus was about, he killed her as well. He then apparently tried to kill himself by turning the rifle on himself, but only ended up injuring his jaw. He picked up his daughter's body and brought her to the garden, presumably to bury her, but collapsed and was quickly arrested by police as his father had run to notify them. He was actually put on trial the same day, and his defense was that the absinthe that he consumed is what caused him to do these bad deeds. In fact, it appeared that he didn't even remember what happened, as when he started to sober up, he started to bawl uncontrollably, realizing what he did. Thankfully, the judge was a man of common sense and recognized that the two glasses of absinthe that he drank were just a drop in the bucket compared to the vast amount of other alcohol he consumed before the murders. As the crimes happened while he was in an inebriated state, he was spared capital punishment, but given a life sentence. But at the end of the day, it really didn't matter because he ended up killing himself in jail a few days later anyway. Without a doubt, this was a very tragic story, but one that was very much sensationalized by those who were the temperance movement in Europe and in the United States, and again pushed in the papers by the winemaking industry who put ads pushing for the prohibition of absinthe. Remember that by this time, the blight was over, and yet wine sales were still low. So this would have been a big win for the winemaking industry that was trying to get back on its feet. And honestly, that seemed to do the trick. As soon as these events happened, tens of thousands of letters were sent in from citizens for their governments to ban absinthe outright. Holland banned it in 1909, Switzerland in 1910, the United States in 1912, and France in 1914. With that, absinthe basically evaporated overnight. While there were still some people making it illegally on their own property, such as certain people in Switzerland making homemade absinthe known as Le Bleu, the only real places that were producing absinthe legally after that time were in Spain and Eastern Europe. Earlier we talked about a drink called pastis, which is something very similar in taste to absinthe, but lacks the wormwood. This became a popular substitute for those who desperately wanted that same experience and flavor, but without the effects of the wormwood itself. Well, what does this story have to do with history and the world we live in today? As we mentioned earlier, this was not the last time society became inflamed over some sort of moral issue involving a substance. Absinthe really kick-started not just prohibition and the criminalization of cannabis, but also what would later become known as the war on drugs. Now, I want you to remember that at the same time that absinthe was being consumed and debated, you could walk into any pharmacy and buy cocaine and heroin. The idea of the government outlawing access to a particular substance was almost unheard of at the time. 
People then turned to the example of absinthe when they wanted to justify the possibility of banning other substances in the future. Something that's interesting to note is that although there was a massive panic about absinthe in the early 20th century, as the decades passed and we realized it wasn't as bad as we thought it was, it was actually brought back to the market, but to little fanfare except to those in the absinthe community. And yes, there definitely is an absinthe community. We're now seeing similar things happening with other banned substances. Of course, there was the repeal of prohibition in the U.S. in 1933, as well as the legalization of hemp and hemp products such as CBD, as well as the decriminalization of THC in many parts of the United States and the world. But just because something is legal doesn't mean you have to go out and consume it. For example, I personally don't use marijuana, but I understand the importance of the recent legalization in many parts of the country. Also, as I said at the beginning, I personally own a bottle of absinthe that I have in my bar at home, but only use it sparingly as a flavoring. Honestly, I think that regular prepared absinthe is kind of gross, and that means a lot coming from somebody who really enjoys licorice and other uh, anise-flavored liqueurs. The whole reason that we did an entire episode on absinthe wasn't necessarily so much because of the story being so important to the modern world, but more about what the theme of the story means to us today, and what it could possibly mean for other moral crises in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Delicious History. I've been Dave Militello, and we want to remind you that we all write our own history. So make yours delicious. Delicious.